I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens that they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. Sean P. McCarthy here, joined by... Andy Palmer. Yogi Paul, Steve Jeffries. And we're continuing our conversation about the Carlisle Group, and particularly the... Um, in particular, For those of you who missed it, Sean is angry at a person on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and it was revealed that his no. dad works for the Carlisle Group. No. Anyways, we did our last week's episode, it's... trashing the company his dad works for, but Sean felt that there was more to say. <laughs> So we made it a two-part episode. Uh, we're recording them together, so we can only assume that since Sean said that, he's been called an ableist reactionary by this guy, <laughs> Connor Arpwell, and has subsequently been fired from his job. Wouldn't it be great? So, yeah, we're recording these together, but wouldn't it be great if the, in the intervening week I have been doxxed and fired? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so while you're listening to this, like to I am a lot more angry <laughs> than I am on this recording. I'd like to believe that you got doxxed and then fired, then found a new job, and then this one comes out and you get doxxed and fired. <laughs> but you know it it's nothing to do with any sort of vindictive streak that i might have or any sort of petty personality traits this is about the big movers and shakers in the american economy and that's what this podcast is about is about educating people about billionaires because uh, again especially with the carlisle group there's and a guy who telegraphs virtue by calling people ableist reactionaries <laughs> uh there's there's so much who has a dad who works for the carlisle group and sells buttons. <laughs> and sells DSA-themed buttons for his own profit. I don't even care about the DSA part. I just don't like that he sells buttons. Yeah. Nobody uses that. Fuck off. Um, but it's a pretty so, lame hustle. Uh, but so this episode will focus a little more on David Rubenstein, William Conway Jr., um, Daniel D'Anello, uh, which are, again, the three billionaire co-founders of the Carlisle Groups. Sean hates this guy online so much that he's decided to get anti-Semitic and anti-Italian <laughs> in one episode. Uh, three billionaire co-founders of the Carlisle Group. Forbes has each of them at a net worth of about um, uh, $3 billion as of um, July 2018. Um, and so we're, we'll talk a little bit more about their defense stuff and uh, the lobbying work George H.W. Bush has done for them. But what I want to talk about this episode is uh, their initial public offering of the Carlisle Group in 2012 and how that was just kind of a money-making scam for them. Um, and also two American companies, called uh, one called Philadelphia Energy Solutions and one called HCR Man or Care, Man or Care, um, and, and so kind of like what we've run through on these these private equity episodes is that private equity has uh, destroyed a lot of unions in this country, destroyed a lot of pensions, destroyed a lot of health care benefits, and um, we we can only cover you know some of that because. But how do it, they do it, Sean? How do they commit these crimes and get away with it time and time again? Well, we'll get to that. But um, uh, partly it is, of course, the carried interest uh, loophole and the preferential tax treatment they get that makes it so profitable. And the fact that they're able to, you know, essentially book a profit, even as we'll discuss in the case of uh, HCR Manor Care, uh, which would eventually go to bankruptcy. They had their profit locked in because of the management fees. 
but before we get to there, just uh, one petty thing. Um, uh, so there's a story in 2007 where there was like brief mo- movement in Congress to repeal the carried interest loophole. Uh, David Ru- uh, Rubenstein uh, was a big lobbyist to stop this from happening. Um, and uh, a managing director at Carlisle, uh, not the one in question of this episode, but a different <laughs> managing director at Carlisle named Bruce Rosenblum, uh, he testified to Congress, and he just said this in opposition to eliminating uh, the carried interest loophole. He said, quote, Is creating the next Google more important than an investment to strengthen iconic American brands such as Dunkin' Donuts and Burger King? And when you think of Dunkin' Donuts and Burger King, you think of good American jobs (laughs) with benefits and decent pay and, uh, you know, just just really what we want to be building more of in this country. Well, uh, David Rubenstein pays himself, you know, $700 million or whatever it was last year. I like how on one hand you have people arguing for creating the next Google. And on the other hand, you have people like their only two options are create the next Google (laughs) or keep Burger King and Dunkin Donuts going. And those are like the two business options for America going forward. I mean, an information database that harnesses all my information and and makes my life worse in the long run or greasy food or that also makes your life worse in the long run (laughs) oh you're getting burger king ads later my friend (laughs) Uh, but so uh, carlisle group did its ipo its public offering in 2012 and as uh, as of today the firm has approximately 195 billion dollars in assets under management again one of the biggest if not the biggest uh, private equity firms in the world Um, but another thing i want to just touch on briefly is uh, pension funds and I think we've kind of talked about this a little bit on some of the other private equity hedge fund um, uh, episodes, but pension funds are like one of the uh, big- most unnecessary expenses a company <laughs> a company can have, and uh, uh, any way to get rid of them is welcome for pen- the American people. Pension funds, and I, I'm pulling the statistic off the top of my head, so it might be completely wrong, but I believe they control about three trillion in capital in the U.S. Um, through the pension system, but it is a significant amount. It is multiple trillions of capital. And so an interesting strategy that private equity and hedge funds have come up with, uh, and David Sirota, the journalist, talks about this a fair bit, uh, is that they essentially lobby government officials, like they were doing this in New Jersey. David Sirota wrote a story on this. Uh, they gave camp- campaign contributions to you know New Jersey Republican Party, Chris Christie, and uh, you know the manager of the New Jersey Pension Fund. And in exchange the New Jersey pension fund started investing in private equity and hedge funds and then started paying way more money in fees because as we mentioned, you know, private equity and hedge funds usually do this two and 20 where they charge 2% fee for all assets under management, 20% of the profits above a certain level. And they usually don't even beat the S and P 500. So it is like, what really? Yeah. Most private equity and most hedge funds do not beat the S&P 500 after fees. So what you're saying is that the Gambino family was probably actually better for the workers. There is. If you listen to the uh, podcast Crime Town, it's about the mafia in Rhode Island. And they have this great quote from some guy there being like, well, you know, at least when the mafia ran Rhode Island, they actually like put some money back in the community. (laughs) Whereas now Wall Street and the financials just take all the money out of it. (laughs) And it is like I watched this John Gotti documentary a few weeks ago. And like, you know, when Gotti was that was just the movie Gotti. Yeah. He looked a lot like John Travolta, <laughs> but um, uh, but when you know Gotti was arrested, or sorry, when Gotti was convicted, there were like a thousand plus people protesting uh, in in New York and like flipping over cars and shit. Right. And when Gotti was first acquitted, you know, in um, 
uh, what is Teflon it? Teflon Dom. Right. When Gotti was first acquitted, you know, in his Brooklyn neighborhood, uh, there were like, you know, lots of cheering people and like, uh, celebrate. Yeah, he played himself up as like a local Robin Hood. Right. And so it's like, yeah, obviously the mafia is, you know, rent seeking and extracting, but it is an interesting contrast. Whereas like the mafia was at least smart enough to put some of their stolen money back into the community. Whereas, you know, Wall Street and private equity and stuff, they extract money and then they just put it into their own birthday parties. Well, what's fascinating is that, you know, there's been the decline of the mob since uh, probably the early 90s, mm-hmm. about when Gotti fell. Mm-hmm. And But a lot of these schemes that you run into with, like, private equity and stuff are basically mob schemes, but through, like, a legitimate company and with some loophole that they were able to lobby for. Right. Like, you know, skimming off of pensions is a classic mob scheme but now um they're able to do it through their government connections it's like how napster was illegal but spotify's the same thing but it's legal yeah i think tony soprano's problem was he didn't hire enough lobbyists <laughs> um but so yes we mentioned the pension funds and then uh from the new yorker article- also he couldn't stop beating up his uh connection in the assembly because he fucked his old uh, former uh gamma spoiler yeah. alerts man come on not all of us have seen it the the key lesson of David Rubenstein is uh, don't beat up politicians who <laughs> cuck you, <laughs> which is why he still has a good working relationship with Barack Obama. For now. Uh, but so, uh, he could have kept his marriage if he just kept his belt in his pants and didn't use it to beat the hell out of. But uh, so just to, to get to uh, back to the pension funds real quick, according to The New Yorker, in 2009, Carlisle's profile included $1.5 billion investment from the New York State Pension Fund. Um, and then Andrew Cuomo, current governor, was the att- the state attorney general that year, and uh, he did an investigation and found that the money had int- been obtained in part through improper payments to middlemen by the <laughs> Carlisle affiliate. So again, you know, all of these private equity and hedge funds, they certainly do lobbying, but sometimes they do outright bribery to get public pension funds to invest with them. And the irony is, of course, private equity destroys uh, pension funds for other <laughs> workers and in many cases in almost every case returns less money to the actual pension fund um, so it's just kind of a, a ridiculous thing but Carlisle uh, it's the beginning of a strong career of Andrew Cuomo's and squashing corruption wherever it rears its ugly head uh, yeah uh, um, but uh, there will be no more mismanagement of funds <laughs> <laughs> under a Cuomo administration uh, <laughs> He shut down the Moreland Commission because he realized someone else was going to use their uh, brandished <laughs> reputation as an anti-corruption enforcer to run for governor. <laughs> he had to had to cut that shit out early. Uh, but Carlisle, they did not admit wrongdoing, but they paid a $20 million fine in that Aww. particular case. But so um, I guess we should just uh, talk a little bit more about David Rubenstein, then we'll get to the other two founders. Um, uh, uh, David Rubenstein... Just like random facts about him that I found. Apparently, in 2007, he bought one of just 17 surviving 13th century copies of the Magna Carta. Right, right. That's that's from Forbes. He bought it for 24.5 million dollars from Ross Perot. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know Perot had it before him. <laughs> uh, Perot had to uh, stand up on a step ladder to complete the sale. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he bought, uh, he's like a history buff. He makes like uh, David Rubenstein. He's like a history buff. He makes a lot of like charitable investments. Apparently he spent like half of the uh, costs of rehabilitating the Washington Monument was just uh, David Rubenstein's um, uh, little philanthropy thing. And he like 
he says this in a couple speeches. I don't know if he's joking, but apparently he toured. Is, wash, is washing the Washington Monument? Uh, is that is euphemism? that just a euphemism for jerking it? He to- it is now. <laughs> he toured the Washington Monument with like a congressional panel or something, and he says in speeches that when they weren't looking, he wrote his name and pen near the top of it. Oh my god, really? <laughs> Which, again, I don't know if he's joking, but I wouldn't put it past him. Um, When he talks about buying uh, the Magna Carta and a few other those documents, uh, one of the sources I saw, he's talking about it, and he basically says, like, you know, you can look up those articles on uh, those documents online, and you might look at them and then move on, but when you see it in person, it really makes you think, and it's like... Buddy, you get the same. You can see it online and think that's not; those aren't mutually exclusive things. I think it when you see it in person, you think, "Wow, I'm really rich. I own this, and only I can look at it if I want." I like the idea of David Rubenstein looking at the the Magna Carta and being like, "Wow, all these limits on the king's power do not apply to me." <laughs> yeah, it's just like, how do I reverse this? <laughs> What's this charter of the bull- the forest bullshit? <laughs> um. But yeah, so in addition to the Magna Carta, he also... Am I one of the barons? <laughs> okay, now how do I find loopholes in this where I can profit? <laughs> yeah. I own the document, be... but I don't own oh, the Oh, there rule. he is. Carried interest. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so he also bought one of the signed copies, signed by Abraham Lincoln, of the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which in fact he loaned to Barack Obama. Uh, how do I reverse this one, too? <laughs> <laughs> like he, he uh, it's forbidden reading for Burger King employees. <laughs> Nobody who works at Dunkin' Donuts can read the Emancipation Proclamation <laughs> because they might get ideas about how America is supposed to function. Reading's um, a privilege here at Dunkin', so you got to earn it. You, should, you want to go read? You you go work at Google. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so, yes, he also loaned his copy of the Emancipation Proclamation to Barack Obama during the Obama presidency, and Obama displayed it in the Oval Office for a time. Um, so, again, you know, he's... Uh, he That's ca- pretty cool. Right. Well, he, he's uh, he's maintained his relationships on both sides of the aisle. As we mentioned, uh, George Bush Sr. is... A- I'm glad that a famous historical American document has to be loaned to the president <laughs> and display it uh, in his office. How the first historically black American president has to... Ask a white dude. Ask a rich white guy if he can display the Emancipation Proclamation in the White House. Abraham Lincoln, while he was writing and signing it, he was like, someday this will be sold to the man who <laughs> bought it using money he got by planning the 9-11 attacks. <laughs> <laughs> just the way I'm intending it. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what, what's 9-11? What's a, what's a plane? <laughs> oh, you'll find out. <laughs> and then he walks into the sunset tipping his hat. <laughs> uh, you know what? Let's just tell people he got shot. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> because this is way too weird. Uh, Lincoln's last words before walking into the theater that night were, you know, I have some questions about Tower 7. (laughs) (laughs) What's a tower? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so, and uh, uh, David Rubenstein has had uh, uh, just some fun quotes. Um, He said, quote, I did not come from a wealthy or college-educated family, but I had the good luck to have two parents who provided me the most important ingredient for a successful life. Uncondition- a <laughs> Unconditional love and support. 
and um, later uh, Washington lobbying contracts with Saudi Arabia. <laughs> he talks about his family not being like wealthy or, or college educated, but it really feels more like he's being like, those losers, <laughs> they raised me, but fuck them. Like, it, it seems <laughs> less like he's like, oh, well, you know, working class and more like, like those two people were bums. <laughs> they could never afford the Magna Carta. I also like how self-congratulatory it, it always is when someone talks about like, how great their parents raised them and how that allowed them to have more stuff than other people. Right, right, right. I mean, they worked hard, but I'm fucking running shit. Yeah. <laughs> if, thanks to their love. Yeah, I like the I idea. I got a bunch of things. Like, you know the seven billion people on the planet who are not billionaires? Uh, they did not have unconditional love and yeah. support from their parents. Their parents didn't love them. <laughs> Um, oh, and another thing David Rubenstein has said is that he was once offered the opportunity to meet Mark Zuckerberg before he dropped out of Harvard, but decided against it. He says this is his single greatest investment regret. And I like the idea of uh, David Rubenstein getting a phone call telling him to cancel his meeting with Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> I like the notion that Mark after that was like, I just want more friends. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, like, do you really regret not meeting Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. It sounds like a Sorry. terrible afternoon. I was. Uh, that sounds like a dude that wants to fuck Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> he, he missed out on a chance of Mark Zuckerberg telling him how a Holocaust denial comes from a good place. <laughs> um, oh, and, and Stephen, you'll love this one. Uh, Rubenstein, so he's uh, received a lot of uh, 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 criticism regarding the carried interest loophole, which we've mentioned a fair bit, but Rubenstein uh, led the fight to prevent it from being repealed in 2008, and then, of course, Trump has basically solidified the carried interest loophole, where these people in finance uh, and private equity hedge funds are paying about half the tax rate as everybody else pays. Um, but so Rubenstein tells Charlie Rose in 2012, quote, our bigger problem isn't carried interest. Our bigger problem is the $1 trillion annual deficit and the $16 trillion of debt we have. Wow. That's right. And, uh, oh, um, didn't he, uh, I don't know if you're going to get to this, but mm -hmm. the American Enterprise Institute, was it Ruben who made a, a donation? It was um, uh, the I've other, uh, Danielle uh, D'Anello. Uh, made a $20 million donation uh, to the American Enterprise Institute, of course, mm -hmm. the conservative think tank. And in exchange, he got a building named after him uh, where, you know, I guess the factual feminist videos will be recorded now or something from based mom, Christina Hoff Summers. But anyways, well, uh, I, I guess... I have no idea what any of that meant. <laughs> Christina... Christina Hoff Summers is like one of those anti-feminist women you see online, and uh, she was very popular in Gamergate, where she was like, you know, these aren't attacks on female journalists. Uh, uh, people are just sick of uh, SJWs putting their politics in video games. So a lot of the 4chan people called her based mom, and it's just kind of funny where, like, you know, a, a subversive web culture uh, pushes up and promotes uh, this woman paid by dark money to launder the evils <laughs> of billionaires and say global warming isn't happening. Um, Based. Uh, but so um, uh, Rubenstein has also, he he has a, a Gulfstream private jet, a G550, which I don't know if it's better than a G6 or not. We but. should start learning, like, <laughs> since we're researching billionaires, mm -hmm. we need to learn what all the Gulfstreams are uh, but so we can compare them based on their <laughs> Gulfstreams. Yeah, I'm into it. But uh, according to this Forbes article, Rubenstein has a busy lifestyle, and uh, he 
travels on his private golf stream 250 days a year. What's the what? number again? <laughs> a golf stream G550. Okay. Uh, 250 days a year? Yes. Where's so, he going? <laughs> he's he's going to the polar bears to laugh at them. <laughs> ah. You don't own the Magna Carta. <laughs> well, those are okay sized. It's uh it's hard to hard to swim all that distance, isn't it, Mr. Polar Bear, huh? You can uh you can stand up in these. <laughs> Ken Langone uh, had a story about his first private jet and how his dad had to duck down and he asked his dad, what do you think of this uh, private jet? And he says, I like the ones where you can stand up. And then like the button to that story is like, I have a much bigger private jet now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What charming people. Um, but so in that same Forbes article, uh, Rubenstein just gives an, a revealing quote. He says, quote, I am on 30-some nonprofit boards, which I love and to which I give a lot of money, but the networking is helpful to my firm. I can help build the firm because of the contacts I make. Right. So it, it is interesting just how billionaires launder their philanthropy. You know, if you're on that much corporate welfare, mm-hmm. you should be severely restricted in what you can buy you're on, you know, with, those, with those welfare checks. Just a side note, I'm I'm having trouble differentiating between the Gulfstream G500 and the images and the Gulfstream G550 because I thought it would be pretty different, like the TI-83 graphing calculator versus the TI-89. Obviously, <laughs> but maybe it's just because I don't fly these things, I, I can't I can't differentiate. Well, once you get your pilot's license, you'll be able to figure yeah, out the difference. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that David also said is that like he doesn't golf or doesn't drink, so he doesn't spend time at bars, so he's oh. got enough time to be a part of these philanthropic group and it's like buddy you could golf and drink and you would still have time to do this you can't pretend that golfing and drinking would take up that much time out of your life i mean he has paid several hundred million dollars a year to do basically nothing to fly around the world and do his little bloomberg talk show and promote his philanthropy and like you know as we mentioned he's a chairman of the smithsonian institute a chairman of the kennedy center for performing arts um, and you know, he's, he's really kind of, uh, I guess he also gave like a, a million to the national zoo in 2011 to promote panda procreation. What? Really? <laughs> yeah. Just that kind of shit. I like that. Uh, a priority for him was making sure pandas fuck. <laughs> well, he did. He has said, quote, I anal, he, he says he, he finds an analogy between private equity and sex saying, quote, you realize there were certain things you shouldn't do, but the urge is there and you can't resist. <laughs> Wow. So uh, no wonder the uh, pandas are having so much problems breeding if um, they are taking the uh, David Rubenstein school of how to have sex, which uh, involves... I'd I'd say in terms of David Rubenstein, it's probably like, you know, private equity is just like sex. I have a court date for both (laughs) because of both. Uh, Private equity is... Cut that out, Yogi. Cut it. (laughs) No, don't. Private equity is just enhance it. <laughs> uh, private equity is just like sex. It gets easier when they don't have pensions or health care benefits. Um, we're meant to talk about he, what he's a board member of. This is a list of it. It's the Kennedy Center, the Smithsonian Institution, Council on Foreign Relations, Harvard Corporation, National Gallery of Art, yeah. University of Chicago. Just play B- someone from the documentary who does the same <laughs> list. <laughs> Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, John Hopkins Medicine, Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, Institute for Advanced Study, 
Duke University. And uh, two of these that I found very interesting was the Institute for Advanced Study, uh, because essentially it's like, hey, you're smart. We're going to put you in a place and you guys can uh, hang out and learn and figure out some shit. Wait, who's in the Institute of Advanced Study? Uh, this is he, this is a he's a board member of that group. Who's in oh. this? Uh, I, I, oh, he's oh, I. Because that was like the thing that Einstein created, the Princeton Institute of Advanced Study. I'm yes. sure he's there because of merit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like the idea of like a guy who's only worth like a hundred million who has to go to the Institute for Intermediate Study. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so um, Rubenstein, uh, I also. What if like uh, it came out that like Rubenstein like funded? It was se- started by Werner von Braun. Rubenstein like gave uh, several million to Popular Mechanics uh, magazine to debunk 9/11 truth. <laughs> like, no, it it can melt steel beams. <laughs> Come on, stop asking questions. Um, but so uh, he was uh, David Rubenstein was uh, picketed by the Working Families Party of New York uh, because of the uh, carried interest loophole. And I guess he was giving some sort of speech of like the civil disobedience efforts of like Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And these protesters interrupted him. And he said at the time, quote, when history is written and people talk about the great protests, I don't think that this will be in this category. <laughs> uh, so yes, when people uh, talk about the great protests, they will not remember uh, when they asked uh, him to pay a little bit more in taxes. Uh, One thing I want to mention about the board members is the Council of Foreign Relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a public policy think tank. Bless. If you look on the Wikipedia, there's a controversy part, and uh, there's a few links that uh, are now disappeared for some reason. I don't know. The, whatever the bibliography was, you can't find anymore. There's an oops, something went wrong link that shows up, which is another example of how corporations that have billions of dollars can clean the internet of their filth. Uh, and so just one other thing before we move on from the Rubenstein quotes. So, Wait, fr- so uh, one other thing before Sean does is one other thing. It looks like the <laughs> Gulfstream 550 uh, is was their newest uh, top-level jet, um, but it is now being replaced in terms of top-level jets by the Gulfstream 500 and the Gulfstream 600, which are being introduced this year. So if Rubenstein wants to uh, stay hot with the uh, billionaires, he is going to have to trade up. To a better private jet. To a better private jet. Mm. Yeah, uh, it looks like a G500 is 43.5 million. G600 is 54.5 million. So if you want, oh wait, 57.9 million. Mm, that was 24. Check, refresh check, Craigslist. Craigslist. Yeah. <laughs> we do eBay. <laughs> uh, so one last thing on the David Rubenstein quote before we move on is. Um, on June 8th, this is according to New Yorker, uh, Rubenstein was giving... Sell me this pen. <laughs> there we go. Uh, on June 8th, um, I believe of 2007, Rubenstein was giving an address to the uh, supporters of the Economics Club at the Phillips Collection, and um, his cell phone rang, and he left the stage. I like the idea of somebody saying, the operation is canceled <laughs> and hanging up. But uh, according to The New Yorker, his cell phone rang and uh, he left the stage. And so in 2007, this was in the middle of like the last time the Senate uh, tried to close the carried interest loophole. It passed the House, um, and uh, or I think 2008, excuse me. It passed the House, but then it got stuck in the Senate. And so um, uh, 
in June 8th of that year, Rubenstein gets this uh, cell phone call. He leaves the stage, and then he comes back on the stage. Uh, he returns and says, quote, that was a senator. That one call just saved us on carried interest. Wow. And he denies saying this. But basically, the carried interest loophole got to like 57 or 58 senators, uh, but they could never get to the uh, filibuster-proof 60. And, of course, they would never want to uh, remove the filibuster <laughs> right, right. to uh, end uh, carried interest loophole. To end a system where about uh, 30% of the population and select states can stop anything from advancing for the rest of the country. Um, but so I guess we can move on to a couple uh, just interesting investments that the Carlyle Group has. Well, I guess we should first talk about the IPO that the Carlyle Group did in 2012. So David Rubenstein himself said that the reason they did this initial public offering in 2012 was he wanted to liquefy his holdings or make his holdings more liquid because, as we mentioned, he has about a $3 billion net worth. And most of that comes because the three partners have... About, or had about a 50% stake in Carlyle Group. Uh, they've since sold some of it, but they still have significant stakes. Uh, and then, of course, managing directors uh, uh, also have equity stakes in the firm. Um, but uh, David Rubenstein wants to do this IPO uh, to liquefy his holdings. And the, the Carlyle Group IPO is very interesting. And I, I just get this New York Times quote here. Uh, the New York Times wrote in 2012 that it is quite possible that the Carlyle, Carlyle Group, the private equity firm that is preparing to go public, is proposing the most shareholder unfriendly court, corporate governance structure in modern history. Um, so basically, uh, as per the um, uh, shareholder rules and such, uh, Carlyle shareholders have no ability to elect the directors. Um, they have uh, no ability. There's going to be no oversight of compensation. That's all going to be set in-house. Um, Carlisle, uh, according to the New York Times, Carlisle does not even intend to hold annual meetings of stockholders. Uh, given that the shareholders have no voting rights, why bother? Oh, wow. Really? And, yeah. But which I guess... Wait, it, that's the only reason they have those meetings is because they have voting power usually? Or, well, yeah. Or, it's, it's, it's a place... You, uh, public companies, it's a place for shareholders to express concerns about things that the company has done. Right, right. And uh, it is actually, I think, kind of wise that they are not having these meetings because for the podcast, I would have bought one share and, <laughs> and gone there and asked about what happened at Tower 7. <laughs> um, they would have been like, which Tower 7? <laughs> Uh, but so it's it's just interesting where and a lot of other private equity firms, including the Blackstone Group, but they're are, like, oh, you got one share. We have to tell them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the Blackstone Group, Apollo Global Management, among others, have similar things. And then the one thing that Carlisle uh, tried to do that was too far is they wanted to force all shareholder class action lawsuits into arbitration. And if you're not familiar with arbitration, it's basically like. Okay, it's you sign this contract and you can no longer go to the courts. We'll just resolve everything in house, which surprisingly enough tends to uh, favor the company yeah. more often than the court system does. Um, but so there was actually a lot of pushback against that and a lot of allegations that it might be illegal. But the Supreme Court has actually upheld some of these ridiculous arbitration clauses in the past. But they eventually backed off of this arbitration clause. However, if you own shares in the Carlisle Company, you have no input into the direction. You are just helping David Rubenstein fucking liquefy his money <laughs> so he can buy more Magna Cartas. Um, There's what you're saying is it's potentially a large pump and dump company? I don't think I'm saying that. What I'm really saying... You can remember. Sell me this pen. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, that's what I'm saying. 
Um, and, and just like another thing about the IPO from um, uh, Business Insider kind of goes through private equity uh, and why IPOs are kind of ridiculous for them. Again, the Blackstone Group has done an IPO as well. It's essentially a way for them to cash out. But uh, the three ways to get economic exposure to a private equity fund is to be an investor in the fund, number one, or two, be a manager of one of the funds, uh, in which case you're Essentially, if you're in the category number two, a manager of one of the funds, you are guaranteed profits because you get these, as we mentioned, management fees, uh, two and twenties and all that. And, you know, even if um, a, a company you take over goes bankrupt, you've already locked in profit. So you're totally fine. Um, or the option number three is to buy publicly traded equity. And the thing is, when you're buying uh, t publicly traded equity in one of these companies, you are essentially last in line uh, to get any profit. So it is uh, kind of a ridiculous deal. It's like a breadline of bullshit. Right. There's, according to Business Insiders, there are incredibly effective mechanisms set up to capture as much of the value for the managers before it gets to you. Um, so this IPO was uh, essentially a way for David Rubenstein to uh, launder his money, and he's been very successful at it. And he's also kind of laundered his reputation as a philanthropist who, you know, interviews Bush and Clinton and, uh, you know, donates all this money to the arts and this kind of shit and scrawls his name on the Washington Monument. It's crazy because, like, when you look at the philanthropy with the bigger picture of everything he's done, it seems less like I want to help the world and more like, oh, I caused a lot of pain. I, I probably should give back. Wait, so Sean, you said he laundered his image as a philanthropist, like he had a dirty image as a philanthropist, and then he ran it through some legitimate companies, <laughs> and now, now he's he's gotten above the board <laughs> reputation as a philanthropist. <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah, I, that's what he's saying, Andy. You got a problem with that? So I want to not. I want to talk about two companies that the Carlisle Group has been involved with. Um, and again, you know, if you haven't listened to our previous episode, well, that's kind of important for this one. But you know, that kind of talks about their um, nine eleven incorporated. <laughs> Uh, that talks about um, some of their uh, initial investments uh, in the defense industry. But uh, another thing they did, as we mentioned, George Bush Sr. came Mahomet on board. <laughs> George Bush Sr. came on board the Carlyle Group in 1998. And since then, they've been very secretive about saying how much they are actually paying him to do things. But one of the things he did was lobby for them in South Korea. And the documentary Iron Triangle makes the argument that um, George Bush Sr. helped get them uh, some contacts in South Korea and then uh, with their influence, just in terms of general lobbying, um, the Asian financial crisis happened in, I believe, 97, 98. Mm -hmm. um, and the South Korea had to be bailed out by the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And as a condition for this IMF bailout, they made South Korea change its laws so that banks, uh, Korean banks, could be majority foreign ownership. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And so after uh, he left. The presidency, he, he was working for Carlisle and made several swings through East Asia, going to Thailand, one, up, guys. going to South Korea and other places, sort of looking for investment opportunities for Carlisle. And Carlisle finally settled on, on South Korea. And, how, and then the way that overlaps with, with policy is uh, under the during the Asia crisis, the International Monetary Fund uh, you know, came in with this rescue package for South Korea that the United States uh, backed. And the U.S. used the IMF crisis to push through uh, deregulation and, and changes in rules around foreign ownership, the changes that they'd been unable to, to press through, you know, maybe 25 or 30 years of trade policy. Okay, so I'll say that unlike last episode where the clips explained it better than Sean, 
I think this time Sean explained it way better than the clip. Yeah, I think you did good. Nice job, Sean. Uh, yeah, uh, they, the the clips don't have enough ableist slurs, <laughs> and that's that's what I add to the analysis. Um, but yeah, so uh, Carlisle would invest about a billion dollars in Core Am Bank, Korean, uh, I don't know, Korean American Bank. I'm not sure exactly, but it is interesting where uh, their connection uh, from paying George H. W. Bush allowed them to set up shop in Korea, and then allowed them to lobby to get the IMF to uh, impose conditions on uh, uh, suffering South Koreans in the financial crisis that would be greatly financially beneficial to them. And also, uh, George, a- uh, George W. Bush, Carlisle, put him on the business, uh, uh, put him on the board of uh, Carter Air, sorry, Cater Air in 1990. Uh, Cater Air? Yeah. Is it Carter Air? Carter Air, uh, C-A-T-E-R, Air. C-A-T-E-R? Yeah, it was a... Texas-based. Uh, oh yeah, so it was a Texas-based company. It was a really well catered airline. <laughs> it was a Texas, yeah, Cater Air. It's, it was a Texas-based company that provided in-flight meals for passengers. Oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it provided a. Uh, 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 oh, so it, it really is right there. On the yeah, bank. right, yeah. right. It provided last meals for the people George W. Bush <laughs> would go on to execute. <laughs> <laughs> Bush was able to insider trade on his knowledge as to uh, what the menu options would be uh, for the people he would be putting to death. The people in that airplane were paid crisis actors, and they weren't very good crisis actors, so they put them in the one where they get killed. Um, but so um, there's two American companies that I particularly want to talk about with regard to the Carlisle Group, and the first is called um, Philadelphia Energy Solutions. Um, so Philadelphia Energy Solutions... Uh, They're able to harness the power of rioting. <laughs> uh, it was a, a joint venture between, uh, according to Reuter, Reuters, uh, a joint venture between the Carlisle Group and Energy Transfer Partners. Uh, and basically, they took over a 335,000 barrel, oil barrel per day refinery on the south side of Philadelphia. Um, but then they uh, forced uh, employees to contribute more to their health plan and suspended uh, pension uh, contributions um, in, I believe, September 2016, I believe. Uh, so they suspend pension contributions. They make employees contribute more to their health care, essentially cutting benefits. And this is all well, as we know, the way private equity works, paying themselves hundreds of millions of dollars in management fees, uh, racking up debt for the corporate entity, these kinds of things, right. these kind of ridiculous tactics. And so uh, the United Steelworkers, which was the union who represented the employees there, on uh, June 30, 2017, they threatened to strike. They say that these benefit cuts are ridiculous. We will strike. And lo and behold, January 2018, Philadelphia Energy Solutions files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And we've kind of talked a bit about this in uh, the Paul Singer episode, the Steve Schwartzman episode, but bankruptcy courts uh, are a way that private equity, among others, are able to wipe out unions, wipe out pensions, uh, wipe out health care. And so it is just a pretty clear direct relationship where a union is saying, no, you are not going to cut our benefits and make us pay for your fucking uh, golf stream or right, whatever the right. fuck and they're like okay we'll just take you to bankruptcy court and we will wipe you out and we already have a profit locked in so when we talk about the carlisle group they they do a lot of evil stuff in terms of war profiteering and military industrial complex but they also do the more general evil stuff on the domestic side of private equity uh, and that uh, philadelphia uh, energy solutions is a good example of that wow what fucking scum yeah 
But, uh, you know, you got to uh, buy a uh, $700,000 condo in Washington, D.C. somehow. and uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just and, finance. It's, it's nothing personal. <laughs> yeah. That is, quote, finance. And uh, um, uh, the other uh, company that I wanted to talk about for a bit here is... Uh, I mean, destroying pension funds is a recognized disability. <laughs> and... <laughs> I think trying to frame it as a bad thing shows your deep reactionary sentiments. You know, um, if you're opposed to the destruction of disability benefits, you're ableist. (laughs) Really, the ableist thing is implying that people can't survive without disability benefits. (laughs) Are you saying that disabled people would require disability benefits? (laughs) Um, But yeah, so... uh, it is just like the way the private equity industry works, and, and we've, we've hit this point a lot, but uh, we hope people understand when they hear the words private equity, you might as well be saying, you know, uh, vulture, blood-sucking vampire right. who has uh, destroyed the middle class in America and uh, helped us get to a situation where we about 6.5% of private sector workers have a union down from 33-some percent. Um, but so the other big kind of... St- uh, a company we looked at with Carlisle is called HCR Manor Care. Man- Manor Care. Manor? Manor Care. HCR Manor Care. I think, I think they you got it. another three minutes with that? HCR <laughs> Manor Care. No, it's good through this. <laughs> we pronounce every individual Manor syllable. Manor Care. Remember when we thought we'd do a three-parter on this? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so HCR Manor Care uh, uh, was a, another Carlisle. I'll take the man. It was a Carlisle investment property, <laughs> and um, the uh, the Service Employees International Union (SEIU), uh, uh, one of the biggest unions in the United States, uh, protested in 2007 and 2008 because they knew the Carlisle Group was coming in, uh, and they know essentially what private equity does. Uh, so uh, Carlisle Group comes in to uh, HCR Manor Care in 2007-2008. Um, uh, David Rubenstein, he speaks to a conference about these pickets, and he says, quote, He personally fires the first rubber bullets. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he, he, the troops love him because he puts himself up at the front line. Front line, yeah. Pay to play. David yeah. Rubenstein <laughs> appears before the uh, protesters and tears up an original copy of the Magna Carta in front of them <laughs> and says, you have no protections. <laughs> if they let me do this to a priceless document <laughs> guaranteeing the rights of nobility, <laughs> what do you think they'll allow me to do to you? And then this is America plays on loudspeakers. <laughs> Um, so uh, uh, David Rubenstein says, quote, the SEIU is not happy that 60,000 workers at the company aren't unionized. SEIU had like a small union presence there, but the company wasn't majority union workers. Uh, he says they're campaigning and saying the health care will not be adequate. Th- that isn't true in my view. Uh, it's really an effort to increase unionization and not so much to worry about patients' health care. And so, of course... Uh, private equity and David Rubenstein and the Carlisle Group come in, and uh, they uh, thwart off the union. And uh, do you, uh, the way that they decide to increase healthcare access or whatever bullshit, pay, the the way they decide to increase patients' healthcare is uh, by fraudulently overbilling Medicare. <laughs> wow! Uh, at oh, least twelve hundred nice. times. 
uh, and providing treatments that uh, various patients didn't need and that were in many cases dangerous for their health. And they were, in fact, sued by the Department of Justice in 2015 for this. And so just and like faced steep consequences. <laughs> all right. So um, according to the Department of Justice, uh, the federal officials said that uh, they found more than 1,200 false claims filed by HCR between October uh, 2006 and May 2012. Uh, during that time, uh, the government said Medicare uh, issued more than $6 billion in payments to Manor Care, uh, much of which was fraudulent. Um, and so basically, uh, again, uh, from this DOJ complaint, um, uh, it seems like a conundrum that would be like raised by uh, some god figure in a 50s movie. Like, man or care? <laughs> you must choose. <laughs> well, I love men, but I need the care. Oh, God. I guess we'll go with Do care. not pause, uh, mortal. I choose care. I choose care. It is done. <laughs> man or care set up the triage facilities at Ground Zero. <laughs> In a completely unrelated coincidence. <laughs> they just happened to be ready to go at the time. <laughs> uh, but so, uh, and again, we were talking about kind of the mafia. This is literally, if you watch the pilot of The Sopranos, this is the Medicare fraud scheme they come up with where they get a guy who owes them money to bill Medicare for services never provided or for unnecessary services. Right. So this is like David Rubenstein's private equity innovation magic is to come in and just cook the books at a company and make it completely fraudulent. Um, and so, again, just from this uh, DOJ complaint, HCR Manor Care's corporate offices developed a scheme to provide excess care in order to qualify for the, quote, ultra-high rate Medicare pay pays to particularly needy patients. The company then pressured rehab therapists and facility administration to reach unreasonable reimbursement metrics, which led to patients being subject to needless and potentially harmful treatments. Um, and then the suit also claimed that patients were kept in skilled nursing facilities longer than was medically required um, and that uh, HCR threatened to terminate employees who did not administer and bill for unnecessary treatments. And again, this is just textbook fraud and the kind of thing that you might expect to be avoided if you had an actual union at the company. Right, right. So, of course, uh, David Rubenstein's bullshit about how they uh, don't care about health care. They just want to increase union roles. Well, it looks like you don't really care about health care either, you fucking scum-sucking asshole. Um, and yeah, and you too, Connor in D.C. <laughs> Fuck you and your buttons. Your stupid face. What if what if uh, every employee laid off by Carlisle Group gets a free DSA button? <laughs> <laughs> they get half off Connor's buttons. That's how they identify who is fired and who's at the company still. Um, but so HCR Manor Care, uh, partly because of... Uh, I just have to say that these schemes being carried out by massive international conglomerates instead of local mafia, mm -hmm. like... It's over for the little guy. <laughs> That scene in The Sopranos yes. where they're trying to like squeeze uh, Starbucks, fake Starbucks, fake Starbucks shop, and like they just can't because corporate t checks uh, the books every night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, because partly because of this, HCR Manor Care had to file Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. Uh, but as part of their bankruptcy, they paid their fucking CEO one hundred and sixteen million dollars. What? And uh, even though um, uh, because of the bankruptcy, Carlisle was supposed to get uh, wiped out. Uh, according to the New York Post, Carlisle was still able to bank a profit on this deal uh, because of the way private equity is structured. Um, 
Yeah, so it, according to New York Post, it, uh, it will... Es- How is private equity structured? <laughs> it will escape the investment with a profit thanks to a dividend in the wake of the real estate sale leaseback deal. And so we've kind of mentioned like some of these dividends, but like a lot of the management fees are built in to pay out to the private equity owner as soon as any part of the company is sold out, sold off. Hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, so... They- so, okay. So putting this in dumb guy mm-hmm. language... Uh, you, if you're Carlisle, mm-hmm. you buy the company, uh, and then you charge it management fees, basically draining it, and then get rid of it. Uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, so there's a few different ways of doing it, but like yeah, it's primarily the way private equity operates is cutting costs. So they go in, and suddenly they can bill um, uh, this company management fees now that they control it. And they can also run up debt on its books. So right. particularly if they raise leverage to buy the company, they just transfer that debt over to their books. And then there's a few different ways. Usually they just try to cut costs, particularly wages and benefits are the big way to cut costs. Right. And then they either sell it out or if it's a sell it off or if it's a private company, they take it public and sell it off that way. Um, but also, uh, essentially, bankruptcy court is another tool in their arsenal because if, say, there's a union that resists their uh, plans to uh, cut benefits at their oil refinery, they can drag it through bankruptcy court and destroy them that way. Um, but it's the fact that they have you know, these debts transferred uh, off their books and the management fees locked in that they kind of guarantee a profit before they've even done anything. So it's like if they succeed, great. If they don't, they're still fine. Um, but and it's yes. usually built to destroy the companies i mean it seems right well like there's cases where they have like some sort of turnaround you know again like dunkin donuts or they were involved in like hertz but these aren't like good jobs for americans or whatever other benefit you want to say it's it's financial uh engineering and it's uh, uh subsidized by the carried interest loophole and the capital gains tax rate and it's just really been part of the reason that hollowed out the middle class and created all those trump voters uh, but we should talk before we run out of time about the other two co-founders. Uh, we focused pretty primarily on David Rubenstein because he is the public face. He uh, uh, gives fucking TEDx talks where he talks about you don't need money to be a philanthropist. What? Which is like, like, well, you know what? I will give him credit for being perfectly appropriate for a TED talk. Yeah, right, <laughs> Because right. that is the kind of meaningless bullshit that they love there. Um, what I've but, learned about giving away money is that you don't need money to give away money. I've learned you don't need to bust to actually have sex. <laughs> You can just dry hump for a bit. Um, but yes. Yeah, so I mean, that one's true. Oh, <laughs> a- ableist much? Yeah. <laughs> ableist uh, against the people who don't bust during sex? Don't knock dry humping, Sean. I mean, you, guys, you, like, you switched David to Connor for like 20 minutes. And you didn't even know it. <laughs> Um, but so the other two, fa- uh, so David Rubenstein, as we mentioned, you know, public face, he goes on TV a lot. He goes on Charlie or he went on Charlie Rose before Charlie Rose got caught doing the bad thing. But, uh, uh, the other two founders of the car- the co-founders of the Carlisle group, in addition to Steve Norris, who sold off his stake in 95, but the other two billionaires are a little, um, uh, more secretive. There's not as much information about them online, but which is a tragedy. Yes. Um, but it is just something where it's like, you know, if if you're going to, like, profit off war, you know, profiteering, maybe it's smarter to keep a low profile. I don't particularly know. Uh, you'll have talk was you'll, like, you can cause a war in Iraq without <laughs> buying off politicians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you don't have to be rich to change U.S. foreign policy and make it more aggressive to benefit your own investment portfolio. To commit 9-11, you don't need to learn how to land. Yeah. <laughs> That's his TED Talk. You don't need like, an airplane for a 9-11. You know 9-11 was carried out for just like 20 grand or something, right? <laughs> like, you just get a few of your friends, you go in together, you can carry out But with a- our innovation, you can 9-11 for... Ten grand, five grand, six easy payments of three thousand four hundred ninety-nine. <laughs> the audience gives him a standing ovation. <laughs> um. Hi, I'm Billy Mays here with nine eleven. <laughs> it it pans to the audience, and they were all people who were supposedly killed on nine eleven. <laughs> <laughs> they are really fucking with us right now. Um. But so uh, before we run out of time, I just want to talk a little bit about the two other co-founders and what is known about them, uh, William Conway Jr. and Daniel D'Anello. Uh Starting with William Conway Jr., he's also, they're all worth about $3 billion, according to Forbes. Uh, he was born in 1949 in Lowell, Massachusetts. He got an undergrad degree from Dartmouth in 1971, MBA from uh, University of Chicago Business School. Oh, he plays basketball. Uh, yeah. And uh, he, uh, just from his Wikipedia, I'm sorry for the lazy research, but again, there's not much out there on him. Uh, He started his career uh, serving in a variety of positions in corporate finance, uh, uh, commercial lending, uh, and general management. Uh, Okay, so finance. (laughs) (laughs) He worked in finance. Looks like Sean was wrong. This is just regular stuff. Sean has to eat his hat. His, uh, his daughter is a, a rabid conservative who is bullied by members of the John Birch Society. <laughs> it's kind of an opposite scenario. Um, but so he worked for the uh, First National Bank of Chicago, uh, and then he worked in uh, various uh, financial positions at MCI Communications, and I believe, yeah, he was named CFO in 1984, and then he uh, joined uh, the Carlyle Group. Uh, coming from his CFO experience. So, again, it was kind of like we mentioned, it was David Rubenstein, Steve Norris, and then they kind of got these other finance guys to go in with them because they had this idea of a private equity firm that relied on Washington lobbying and uh, insider access, access capitalism, as Michael Lewis has called it. And, um, uh, yeah, that's kind of the basic overview of William Conway Jr. He's kept his head down, he's uh, spent his money, and kept his mouth shut, which is... I guess, you know, it is like... Just how you make it in show business. Right. Well, it is like, just to keep, to continue the mafia analogy, it's kind of like uh, the difference between, like, um, uh, Carlo Gambino and John Gotti. You know, like, John Gotti loved the press, and he talked to the press, and he always kept his fucking face in the papers, and that's a good way to put a target on your back. Whereas, you know, David Rubenstein is, like, picketed, and, you know, people, like, recognize that he's an asshole sometimes when he goes out in public, but if you saw... William Conway Jr., you'd have no idea who the fuck the guy is, right. even though he's, like, uh, <laughs> uh, murdering people on a much larger scale than Carlo Gambino. Um, also, he's in a bathrobe, shuffling along the streets, <laughs> murmuring to himself. That's Vincent Gigante. Yes, Vinny the Chin. So, uh, in conclusion, what do we think about these gentlemen, folks? Wait, wait, let me just finish Daniel D'Anello. I think there is a such thing as a good billionaire. Uh, Daniel D'Anello is the other, co- the third co-founder. Uh, he was born in Butler, Pennsylvania, um, and he like talks about like his uh, uh, working class upbringing, like uh, being the reason he's a conservative. Wow. Yeah. So um, he uh, was like he was also like a financial officer. He was at PepsiCo and TWA, the airline. Mm. 
Um, he was at Marriott as well, which I guess um, uh, the other um, co-founder was uh, worked at Marriott, so they, they met through there. Um, but it was like controversial. He gave a um, $20 million uh, donation to the American Enterprise Institute, and in exchange they um, <clears throat> uh, they named a building after him. And he said of that, according to the Washington Post, he said, quote, it's all about freedom, opportunity, and enterprise. Those are the watchwords of AIE, or AEI. So I would think about my life, I would think it in just that way. Freedom, and, opportunity, and enterprise. And that's how I took Transworld Airlines into the 21st century. The wildly successful 21st century airline Trans World Airlines. According to the the Washington Post, um, uh, the 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 donation will allow AIE to expand from um, 140 staffers in 2009 to uh, 206. Um, and I just like that it's like AEI. AEI. God damn it. Um, but it, I do like that it's like there are hungry people in the world. <gasps> but you know what would be a and better. now some of them are getting jobs at AEI. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now some of them are like doing presentations on how we need to cut social security uh, because of the impending uh, crisis. Uh, all thanks to this man who will have a building named after him in the uh, billionaire misdeeds laundering facility uh, that he helped set up. And this is pretty radical. It's like a job guarantee, but only for right-wing think tanks. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but he said, according to the Washington Post, that he decided to make the contribution because AEI's philosophy mirrors his own, which was a way of thinking nurtured in the 1940s and 50s in the coal mining town of Butler, Pennsylvania. Uh, again, coal mining, not an area known for union membership. <laughs> uh, and he said... Uh, All the coals were being mined. He looked up and saw a TWA plane flying over him and thought, one day, <laughs> I will take that plane out of the air. <laughs> um, but yeah, like he just kind of like, he gives like the usual, I was, uh, according to the Washington Post, he says that his father was out of the picture. So he was raised by his grandmother and his mother. He went to work at a fruit market at just nine years old, uh, which shaped his desire to eliminate child labor law restrictions. Oh um, but uh, he was raised by his grandmother and his mother, and he just gives kind of like the generic um, uh, quotes about like, well, I was poor, and I worked hard, and I got these economic opportunities, so that's why I'm funding AIE, uh, because they'll do the freedom and AEI. give the opportunity. God damn it, AEI, because they'll do the freedom and give the opportunities to the other people. <laughs> they'll introduce other people to the former Secretary of State and Reagan's uh, Secretary of Defense, who will set up uh, insider trading. Uh, defense contracts for them. There were no TWA planes used in 9-11, but they still went bankrupt after 9-11. <laughs> How much of a hand do you think he had in that one? I didn't know so much terrible things about the Carlyle Group, and I feel better for it. I feel like the information that Sean has expunged out of his brain is now in the world. I think it's okay to be ableist now. I like the idea of, like, as the chairman of the uh, Kennedy Center, David Rubenstein does the secret ceremonies where they give the awards, uh, Lifetime Achievement Awards, to crisis actors. <laughs> <laughs> this Sandy Hook kid was the youngest to receive the crisis actor award. It's like when they gave Shirley Temple a small Academy Award for her job. So in conclusion, it's what have we learned today? Let's, let's review that. Well, I think the Crusader missile dead on arrival. I think that's, that's the last first week. 
<laughs> still learning. It's a two-part episode. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. You want us to never mention shit from the other episode? I'm just saying it's going to be a long stretch. People won't remember. They're going to remember. Okay. Many people binge these episodes. Okay. We've got fans <laughs> all over the world, and they enjoy all of our episodes. We've got three fans. I, I didn't realize how Carlisle Group, uh, just to get serious for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. s- sits pretty evenly between like the world of ideological advancement for the right wing, like a- the American Enterprise Institute mm-hmm. and their work with them, and also just domestically crushing unions. And then on the third side of it, uh, international weapons development. Mm-hmm. And then uh, funding wreckers who will enter socialist organizations <laughs> and disrupt them. Yeah, it's crazy how cutthroat they are in all avenues of that. Yeah, these guys are the real deal. I uh, learned that while well, the Gulfstream 550 is nice, the real pimps have already pre-ordered the Gulfstream 600. <laughs> I like the idea of there being like a Carlisle group meeting where they're like, this amber frost of Chapo Trap House seems dangerous <laughs> to our interests. Do we have someone who we could go in and take her out? <laughs> You're telling me she has used ableist slurs in the past. I think we can work with this. <laughs> Let's shut down the Medicare for All campaign. All right, can we wrap this up? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, they got flat screens in the cockpit of the Gulfstream. And with that, this has been Crubstakers. <laughs> Thank you for enjoying our two-part on the Car- Carlisle Group. Uh, my name's Yogi Polywall. I'm Andy Palmer. Uh, I'm Sean McCarthy. I'm Steve Jeffers. David D'Anello, he told the, the Washington Post that while eating a bowl of pasta and slapping his <laughs> wife. 